Amen. This is the day, say it with me, this is the day which the Lord hath made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Welcome to our service this morning where we talk about an exciting subject, and that is why prophecy is so important today. I, it's always been important, but today more than ever before, because we are living, I believe, in the signs of the times, or the times, as someone else has said, the times of the signs. Signs are everywhere, and I hope I can captivate a few of them today and burn them into your heart by the Holy Spirit. Um, I have a couple of books on the table that we haven't uh, sold yet, and they're books on prophecy. I don't write books for profit because I don't take any money from the sale of the books that runs our ministry. I do this so that God's people can study the prophetic word of God, because as I'll show you in a few moments, that is a signal of the supernatural in the word. But there's one book that is a special book to me. It's only two months old. And it's about my favorite person and your favorite person, about Jesus. And why the world is still fascinated by this man who lived 2,000 years ago. Didn't have, as far as we know, a lot of formal education or maybe any. And yet he has been the most remarkable person in the history of the world. In fact, in here I have a chapter on Jesus the prophet. Did you know that Jesus prophesied more than anyone else in the Bible? He's the one that John the Baptist said, Art thou the prophet or the one that should come? And other people asked him, Are you the special one, the revelation from, from Moses? Well, I give you the, the 143 prophecies of Jesus in this book. And half of them have already been fulfilled. That's why we know that the prophet, prophet, prophecy gift was a gift from Jesus. By the way, I want to tell you how much I appreciate being in your church. This is the most infectious congregation I've been in in a long time. You just uh, are happy in the presence of the Lord and you enjoy each other. And I get the impression you enjoy your pastor and his wife. They're special, aren't they? And I want to... <laughs> pastor Steve, I want to thank you for inviting us here and for bringing my friend Dave Hawking here. I know he's the reason we're here, but uh, vitally, but uh, Dave Hawking and I have been friends for almost 100 years. <laughs> well, between us, you know, and, and uh, thank God for his faithfulness. He's the same man preaching the same word, glorifying Jesus. He's always been, and he will continue that way because that's just the way he's wired. But he loves to teach the prophetic word. And he has a special teaching gift that I admire. Plus, he has the megaphone built-in voice that I've always admired. And uh, it's just great to see him going on serving the Lord. And then you, you hear him around the world. Pray for his ministry. And I suppose you, I can encourage you to invest in his ministry as it goes on. It's a privilege to be his friend. And uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, turn with me in your Bible to Second Peter. I've had a good time sharing with you some of my favorite passages, and I want to bring us to a conclusion, if we can get there. Second uh, Peter, the third chapter, is the one that Peter wrote from Babylon, 
And uh, there was a, uh, an assembly there, and he ministered to the people there. And this is his swan song. I think he knew that his time was up and he was going to become a martyr. And uh, in the third chapter, he says in verse 10, well, I, I like to read, uh, pardon me, I meant the first chapter. In verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses to his glory, his majesty. When did Peter see that? When Jesus was transfigured before the disciples, the Peter, James, and John, and they saw him and saw the the glory light of God through him. And he was praising the Lord for that experience. For he received from God, and this is the testimony I want you to see, from God the Father, honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So we have the voice of God credentialing Jesus. Now, in this morning, I'd like to give you some prophecies that also credential him. But reading on, And we heard this voice, which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Prophecy was confirmed by the miracle that they saw. Which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns, and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. How can you account for prophecy only by the Holy Spirit? Who can forecast the future and have it come to pass, only God. And I hope that you'll remember from this conference, excuse me, I have a a congenital weakness on Sunday mornings. It's called a leaky faucet. So forgive me, but uh, I think that it's better than the alternative. Now I want (laughs) to, I thought you'd get that. You know, one of the things about getting mature in life. <clears throat> it's so much trouble. <laughs> problems come along. You know, I used to, for the first 70 years of my life, I never had any health problems. And then I developed a arrhythmia and heart trouble. I have a pacemaker that keeps me going. In fact, I've even had it replaced after the first nine years and still going strong. And uh, I get my exercise by being a pallbearer for so many of my Christian friends. <laughs> but uh, the Lord's been good, and uh, I spent half my time going to doctors and supporting them. I see, I see why Obama wants us to, to fade away after we get by uh, 80, because when you're in your 80s, then you accumulate more and more problems. Kind of reminds me of, have you ever heard of uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer? He writes some good books. He's a friend of uh, Dr. Hawking and mine. And he's a pastor of the Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. Well, his parent, his dad was a minister. Phlegmatic. He sensed a great sense of humor. And uh, they were having their 70th wedding anniversary. 
And uh, I think his mother at the time was 97 and his dad was 103. And so they had quite a celebration. And she gets up and when she's introduced to the crowd and she said, well, you know, the only problem about being 97 is that I've outlived all my friends. All our friends have gone to heaven and we're looking for new friends. Well, my wife and I have solved that. We just find younger friends. But uh, (laughs) then when he got up, He said, at 103, he said, well, that doesn't bother me so much. What bothers me is I think all of our friends are up there and they think we've missed it. (laughs) Well, may I suggest if you are in Jesus, you won't miss it. He is with us and he's going to take care of us. And even if you forget some of the nuances of prophecy that we spelled out, May I suggest he doesn't. He's going to come for you at the right time. And when the rapture occurs, have you ever thought of it? You don't have to jump up. You'll just respond. It'll be an electrifying, God-given experience when you respond. And how do we know this? Because of the prophetic word of God. And I'd like to put it into perspective for you this morning and have you understand what I consider the verse that is mandatory. And it's a verse that many of the Bible commentaries just skip over. They don't even mention it. But it's found in Isaiah 46. Turn with me to that passage if you have your own. By the way, thank you, Pastor, for calling attention to something. And I'd like to say to those of you who are not members of this church and you don't come here regularly, repent of that sin and start coming regularly because (laughs) he passed the real test. I've always told my congregation in San Diego, if you want to find a good church to attend, always, and just remember this, when you go to the service and the pastor announces the text, if you don't hear this sound, you're in the wrong church. Well, I don't care what the doctrine is. If they don't read the Bible, the people don't bring the Bible. If they don't use the Bible, and you want to be in a, what, what do you go to church for? To sing the praises and worship the Lord, yes. But to study the Word of God. And it's appalling to me that so many churches do not teach the Word of God. It's the only thing that we have that makes us different from any other group. We teach the Word of God. And you don't want to teach about it. You want to teach the pure Word of God. Because it's the Word of God that quickens your spirit and helps you to anticipate the future. Thank God for the local church. You know, every good experience in my life has happened as a result of the local church. It was in the local church that my parents were saved. It was the local church where I got saved at eight years of age. And it was at the local church where I got baptized to testify of my conversion. And it was in the local church that I, the two pastors, three pastors got together and they formed a Christian camp before they were popular. And it was at that Christian camp at 15 years of age, I call, I heard the call of the Holy Spirit to the gospel ministry. And I picked up a, a stick. Now, back in those days, we call it a faggot, but that's not politically correct anymore. <laughs> so in that service, I picked up this stick and I put it on the fire. And that represented my life offered to God. And that's the best decision I made. Well, then the second best decision I made First one was accepting Jesus, then giving my life to him. And then after two years in the Air Force, I went to Christian college. And there I fell in love with a young woman who was much younger. She was 
only 17. I thought everybody that graduated from high school was at least 18, even though I wasn't, but uh, she didn't tell me how old she was. She, she, could you believe it? She was only 17 years old. And I asked her if she'd marry me. And she said, well, I'll have to think about it. And so five minutes later, I said, have you made up your mind? <laughs> and she said, yes, I will. <laughs> anyway, but that was because she had Christian parents who sent her to a Christian college. And two of the requirements for a great marriage is they both know the Lord Jesus and you're both committed to him to do whatever he wants you to do. We were both there training to be servants of the Lord. That's a great foundation. That's why we've had wedded bliss for 62 years. It's been a, a running romance. Um, it's just, I thank God. And all that's because of the church. The church is God's vehicle to communicate about himself. You don't hear about himself much on TV and radio, not in praise and worship, but in the church. This is where we extol him and his virtues. Well, in Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, I want to call your attention to that verse where the Lord is dealing with the children of Israel who had begun worshiping idols. I, I'm always bedazzled that the children of Israel, with so many blessings from God, they, he said, remember the old things, the miracles that I did in the past. He's saying to them, remember when I gave you manna from heaven and water from the rock. Remember when I led you by the fire at night and the cloud by day. I made your sandals last for 40 years in the wilderness. Remember all the miracles I did. They'd forgotten that. And then he said these words, I am the Lord. Now, why was he saying this? Because they were doing the worst thing that a person could do. They had violated the first commandment. You all know what that is. We're to worship the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. We're to worship the Lord and have no other gods before us. And the biggest sin that you can commit is the sin of worshiping false gods. Remember this. Satan is an adversary. He's a deceiver. And he wants you to worship him and follow him. And he comes along as a, a minister of light. And he will impose his ideas on you. But he's not honest. Instead of saying, do my will, you know what he says? Do your own thing. Do your own will. Have your own way. You do it. You're smart. You have intelligence. And sure, God says this, but I say unto you, do, do your own thing. And by the millions, not today, but billions of people are following after their own thing and saying, I will not have him to rule over me. Hey, the best thing you can ever do with your life is surrender it to him and let him guide you. Otherwise, you have to make all your own decisions. And it's amazing how many decisions that you have to make in life. But if the Lord is the Lord of your life, you can turn all your decision-making over to him. For example, just last night, I got a message from my wife saying she'd gotten a letter from my partner on, on the uh, books that we've written, Jerry Jenkins. And we're facing a decision on, on making movies. And uh, long story short is I have to make a decision. Some people say they can raise $40 million and produce this movie. But they demand the right to make all the decisions. Who would write the script? Who would who would be the the uh, actors? Who would be the director? Who all of key issues? 
And I, everything in me is saying, don't do that again. We made that mistake and they came out with those awful videos that I'm embarrassed with and the Church of Jesus Christ has not been benefited by it. Instead, I want a class movie that will glorify Jesus and be a testimony to the grace of God and win millions of people to Jesus. So what do you have to do? I have to pray in all your ways, acknowledge him. I just mentioned that because that's just within the last 24 hours it's come to me. And so what do you do? I commit it to the Lord. I know that he has a plan. If you don't know Jesus, you can't do that. And that's why he wants to invade your life, invade your heart and mind through his word and give you assurance that he must be served. That's the greatest way in the world to live. You can pray to take your burden to the Lord and then roll over and go to sleep. How do I know? I did it last night. You know, it's fresh. And I just thank God for the privilege of being his child. He wants to be your Lord. That's what we were singing about, isn't it? We make him our Lord by surrendering our future to him. Okay, now he says, the children of Israel didn't do that. They were worshiping idols. I can't believe how evil they were. Ezekiel had a vision of the elders of Egypt, now, uh, of Israel. He saw through the hole in the door of the temple, and he saw the 72 elders of Israel worshiping idols. I can't think of anything worse for spiritual leaders to do than something like that. And the women weren't much better. The scene changes, and, and Ezekiel saw through vision the uh, Women's Missionary Society, or whatever they call it, up in the gallery. And lo and behold, they were weeping for Tamas the mother of idolatry. And that explains why God let King Nebuchadnezzar, the most autocratic ruler in the history of the world, come by Jerusalem, lay siege to it, and take the children of Israel captive down into Babylon. And for years, I scratched my head and I said, now why would God let Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, take the children of Israel for worshiping idols down to the source of all idolatry. You can go back in all of history. All pagan idolatry stems from Babylon. It's the curse of the devil. That's the seat of Satan. And the Lord let them be taken there. Why? Because God wanted to perform a miracle. You see, in this text, I've got to finish the text and then I'll finish what I'm saying about it. It says, For I am the Lord, and there is none like me. I am God, declaring the end from the beginning, and I shared with you Friday night, that that's prophecy. God's gift of prophecy proves that he alone is the Lord. He alone can give you four glimpses of the future. That's what prophecy is. It's history written in advance. Now, there are two kinds of history, or prophecy. Just ordinary prophecy that involves the children of Israel, the nations of the Gentiles, the world and circumstances and so on, the signs of the times. But there are also prophecies which we call eschatology or end time prophecies. And the interesting thing to me is that so many prophecies have been fulfilled. As a matter of fact, Dr. John Walford, one of our mentors in the field of prophecy, has a book that I hope that someday you can find if it's not out of print. It's the prophetic, let's see if I can read this, 
prophetic knowledge, a prophecy knowledge handbook. I have it. I've almost got some of the things memorized in it. And he has delineated over 1,000 prophecies in the Bible, 500 of which have already been fulfilled. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that God fulfilled prophecy as a proof that he is God. Only God could forecast the future. And I could give you many illustrations of that. Let me just give you one that has to do, well, first of all, how do I know that Jesus is the one and only Messiah? Because there are 109 prophecies, histories written in advance, that signal the fact that no one else could even come close to being the Messiah. For example, where was Jesus born? Is there anyone in the audience that doesn't know where Jesus was born? Would you raise your hand? Almost everyone in the world knows. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? I mean, it wasn't a metropolis. I mean, there were about 400 hamlets and villages and, and huts and cities in Israel in those days. But the prophet said, the prophet Micah, the fifth chapter, said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now, consider how difficult that. I don't know whether the biggest miracle was that he was born in Bethlehem or that Mary didn't have the baby on the way to Bethlehem. You mothers, how would you like to be great with child? That might be nice for a couple of hours. And that's when the time the, the child, the unborn child, is kicking every organ in your body. And uh, at that point, Joseph was compelled by law to go to where he was born in Bethlehem to give an accounting for the taxation. Where did they live? In Nazareth. In other words, 90 miles away. And they didn't put her in the back of a comfortable caravan or van or, you know, nice machine with shock absorbers. What did he do? Well, I think two things come to mind. One is he probably put her on the back of a mule. Have you ever ridden on a mule? I'm sure it would be a calm one because the Lord would just make him calm. But I'm, and I'm sure that Joseph, a loving husband, would have patted that mule. Well, you say, well, I don't think it was a mule. It was probably an, an ox cart. Have you ever ridden in an ox cart? Without rubber tires, without shock absorbers, with, and, and no streets, no pavements. I mean... He had to be, it's a miracle to me that that baby lasted for 90 miles. As a matter of fact, they had to go by the Jerusalem General Hospital, if they had any hospitals in those days, but because Jerusalem was on the way to Bethlehem. And four and a half miles past Jerusalem, they came to Bethlehem, and the people were they didn't have any room for him. You know that story about that. And Jesus was born in a manger, or born in, in probably a cave or something, outside of Bethlehem, because they didn't have room for him. Not much has changed in the last 2,000 years. They, the world still has no room for him. But that's a story all in itself. The point is, she lasted until then, and then the baby was born. Why? Because almost 700 years before that, the prophet had said that one of the signs would be Bethlehem, where he's born. 
That's a miracle. That's only one. Would you like to try the other 108? We'd be all day talking about them, but they're incredible signs so that we can be absolutely positive when we stand before you that Jesus is the one and only Messiah. In fact, let me put it into perspective. I did this the other night, but I think it's so important. Do you know how many people have ever fulfilled more than a dozen of those prophecies? None. I would estimate that no other person fulfilled more than seven or eight of the prophecies of Jesus. But get this, he fulfilled them all. He fulfilled them all. So that we can be confident on this Sunday morning that Jesus is one of a kind. He is God's special servant as the only Messiah that has ever lived. And that's only one of the qualifications he had for being the Messiah. But there are other prophecies, and that is prophecies about pagan nations. And one of the prophecies that I shared with you that I get so excited about is young Daniel, who's brought before the king, Nebuchadnezzar. And that's why the Lord used this city. Remember, this is Babylon was the source of idolatry. And they had all these necromancers and soothsayers and false prophets and whatever they wanted to call them that were the holy men that were advising the king about the future. They all had them in those days. They thought that they needed some special insights. And so they they fed these people and gave them a place to live and raise their families. And so the king brings them in and he says, I had a dream the other night and I can't remember what the dream was, but I know it was very important. Well, it was... the dream about the future kingdoms of the world, the times of the Gentiles. And then he, he said, now, tell me what the dream is, and then you can tell me the interpretation. They said, oh, no, king, if you tell us what the dream is, then we'll interpret it. And he knew they were all crooks, so he said to them, no, either you tell me what the dream is or off with your head. You know, dictators are kind of like that. And... Uh, So they couldn't do it, so they brought Daniel in. And young Daniel, in the second chapter, read it sometime this week, it's really inspiring. Young Daniel is brought in, maybe he was 17 or 18, and he said these people couldn't do it because they're not in touch with God. He prayed with his three friends, and then he said, the Lord has revealed this to me because there's a God in heaven. Remember this, verse 26 to 28, second chapter of Daniel. There's a God in heaven who reveals secrets. Only God can reveal the secrets of the future. And he has done that many times. And on your chart, we see the the big image of Daniel and the four world empires. The the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian, silver and the belly of brass and the legs and feet of iron and the feet of clay mixed with iron. And then a strange thing happened. And that is that there was a rock cut without hands that struck the image and ground it to powder and the wind came along and blew it away. So what do you have? If you see this timeline here, I hope you can see that graphically. My dear friend uh, has shared with me that the experts in uh, PowerPoint graphics are that you never put too much on a graphic. Oh my. That's one of my sins. I always put, I'm a compulsive communicator of the Bible and I put too much on one screen, but use your imagination. 
You see what, what we're doing. The times of the Gentiles began with Nebuchadnezzar. He was the head of gold. And then the Medo-Persians came, a double empire, and that's historic. And then they were followed by the Greeks, and the Greeks were followed by the Romans, and nobody has followed them. Why not? Because God said there would be four world empires. And you historians, I challenge you to find anyone else that made number five. God said 2,500 years ago through the prophet that there would only be four world empires. And Daniel predicted the future on the basis of that dream until the time when the rock of ages cut without hands would come. And who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he would set up his kingdom and his kingdom would fill the whole earth. And that's why when you see on the chart here how close we are to the end times, that's what eschatology is. The prophecies concerning the end times. We're rapidly approaching that time. Well, may I suggest that these prophecies are just some. There are many other prophecies in the Bible. Remember I said 500 have been fulfilled? How about the, the city of Tyre? It's interesting. Tyre was in the news just recently as they had some explosions there and so on. Well, that's not the old city of Tyre. That's by the old city, but it's not the old city because the Bible prophecy said seven times in Ezekiel 26 that when Israel, when, when uh, Tyre had been so abusive to the children of Israel, God would destroy them and their foundation stones would be where the stretching of nets, fishermen, and they do that today. Those of us who've been to the Holy Land have seen the fishing nets are still there. It's never been rebuilt, as the prophet said. And you read that, and you'll find there are seven qualifications to the destruction of the city of Tyre. Now, that may not mean much to you, because we've forgotten that there was a time when it was one of the principal city-states walled right on the Mediterranean Sea. And they commandeered the ships that passed by, and the merchants that passed by, and they abused the children of Israel. And yet God said that they would be judged and never again rebuilt on that site. And here we are, 2,500 years later, and it's been fulfilled. There are many other prophecies to show us that God fulfilled his word on every prophecy that needs to be fulfilled until the day in which we live. Therefore, we can anticipate the future unfolding as God has communicated it. Well, let me give you just a few of the signs of the times in which we live. I wish we had an hour and a half to go over all of them, but let me just rehearse some of them for you. Um, again, my eyes aren't as good as they used to be. Oh, yeah. May I submit to you, the Bible predicted in the last days there would be a degeneration and moral breakdown in society. I don't even have to waste time proving that even in America one of the best nations on the face of the earth, we're having a moral holocaust in our society today. And then there'd be an increase in knowledge and also an increase in travel. Now, how in the world did the prophet know 2,500 years ago that one of the signs of the last days would people be running to and fro on the earth? 
if you've been on the freeway lately, when you come into a landing in Los Angeles or San Francisco or any other city in the world, you see people traveling everywhere. And how is that made possible? Knowledge would be increased. Are we living in an age of increased travel and increased knowledge? The increase in knowledge makes possible the increase in travel. Now, how in the world did the prophet know 2,500 years ago that one of the signs of the end times would be an increase in knowledge and so on? And then, of course, Israel is the super sign in our lifetime, well, in the lifetime of some of us. The nation of Israel was brought back into the land, and Ezekiel 36, 37, and 38 and 9 are fitting examples of this very thing. You, if you wanted an exciting story to read, read Ezekiel 36 to 38, 39, and you'll find two things that are signs very clear. One is that Israel would be brought back from the world of nations. And the thing that makes that so incredible is no nation in the history of the world has ever been able to exist having been uprooted from its homeland and scattered to the uttermost parts of the earth for more than 300 years. And then they just sink beneath the sands of time. The list goes on of all these nothing nations that used to be something nations. Instead, we see Israel gathered in our lifetime back into the land. And you say, what is the absolute super sign that, that we're living in the end of the age? Israel, 1948. And may I suggest to you, the clock is winding down. We're getting closer and closer to the end time. And then there's other signs, like scoffers would come. And I don't have to tell you about all the people that are trying to change theology and ridicule and say, where is the promise of his coming? How about Israel? I don't pay attention to Israel. That's one of the screaming signs. And how about apostasy? Uh, there will be a falling away. And we're living in a time when many are falling away from the faith because they don't get the true word of God. And what about uh, the rise of Russia? I mentioned the other night that Russia was a nothing nation for centuries. And now it's become a world power in our lifetime. And who are their allies? The very neighbors of Israel, the people that are described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's almost incredible. We're seeing prophecy fulfilled in our very eyes. And the Arabs and the Russians have never been allies before in the history of the world. But they are today. I don't even have to prove it to you. Read the newspaper, you know what's going on. And they're raising up their fists against God and against America, and anything that's decent and wholesome, because they are determined to rule the world. One thing I'll tell you, I'm not worried about the Islamic-Russian invasion, because I've read Ezekiel chapter 39, when God is going to interfere in the affairs of men, and he's going to destroy the enemies of Israel on the mountains surrounding that area. But it's so important for us to understand that the named nations are the very neighbors of Israel today. That in the last, have you thought about the fact that the whole world is fascinated by what's happening in Israel? The hatred of the Arab world and the Russians against Israel is uncanny. And it, it makes us aware of the fact that the world's focusing their attention on Israel. A number of years ago, my the church, I think, got tired of my preaching and they gave me a sabbatical year. My wife and I went around the world and we ministered to 
missionaries in 46 countries of the world. And I'll never forget being with a missionary out. And I, I love these guys that just believe God has called them to win the whole world for Christ or their area of the world. And this missionary in Singapore, he was so excited about the fact that he only knew English, like me. I needed an interpreter. And I, he said, you don't need an interpreter here. He said, just speak English. All these people know English. We had about 600 people, many of them college, young people. And they were saved and they wanted to reach the people. But there are three languages in Singapore that are, are natural. There's uh, Malaysian and Chinese. And he, by ministering through English, was ministering to them. And then he made a profound statement. He said, if you draw a circle around Singapore for 2,000 miles, you will encompass 50% of the world's population. I got to thinking about that, and well, then he interrupted me by saying, when did you hear about what happens in Singapore? I ask you the same question. When do you hear about it? It's been months for, since we've heard of anything about Singapore, the center of the world's population. But when did you hear about Israel? Last night on the evening news. You see, God said that Israel would be front and center in the last days. Well, I could read it. Go on. What it's telling us is that we're rapidly coming to the end. And I shared with you the other night the three global stools or the three global legs of the one stool of globalism. Everybody knows about globalism governmentally, economically, and religiously. And I, did you see last week how the Pope has now decided that uh, they can welcome back the Episcopalians and merge with them? And in fact, that some of the priests are married. That's okay, we'll just change the rules and let you come in. I don't understand all that, but the fact is the religions of the world are getting together. And it won't be long before the Hindus will be invited in. And as soon as we're raptured, there's going to be no one to keep the world from getting together. And that doesn't have culmination until after the rapture of the church. Well, you see on this chart the uh, timeline. I put this on again. It's a basic chart with me. Burn it into your mind because this is the outline of Scripture on what's going to happen. Soon, we're seeing the signs of the times. Soon, the Lord is coming to take us to be with himself, and the world will go through tribulation. And then the great tribulation. The tribulation is the first three and a half years when the Antichrist and Israel make a covenant together, and they have peace for three years. For some reason or other, the, the Jews will be so powerful and influential that the Antichrist will have to make a league with them. He's got some problems. He's got the Dome of the Rock, one of the most sacred sites of the Muslim world, and he's got to move that so that the temple can be rebuilt. And they'll work it all out. You can be sure he probably will offer them a, a new site in, in Mecca or Babylon. Maybe they'll re rebuild the city of Babylon. Many things that could happen in a short period of time, and they could rebuild that temple. And then three and a half years later, he revokes the covenant he's made. And then you have great tribulation. And I don't have time this morning nor you the disposition to read about all the things in Revelation. But this is described in the book of Revelation. 
as the 21 special judgments that will hit the earth during that period of time. And at the end of that time, Christ will come like Daniel projected. And he will take over the leadership of the world and he will rule the world. And so may I ask you this Sunday morning, are you ready for this eventuality? I hope you are. Because prophecy is so important. And yet there seems to be a devilish, except in this church, and a few like this, there seems to be a devilish silence. The last thing people, that Satan wants people to understand is prophecy. That they understand that they must be ready. Christ could come at any moment. And that sign is going to be fulfilled. As a matter of fact, did you ever hear the story of the, the couple that had a little girl? Eh, I had two little girls, so I know what they're like. And they're lying in bed. She's about 10 o'clock, kind of late. And they said, now, you've got to go to bed. And she'd call for a drink of water, and then a cracker, and then something else. And finally, her father said, now, you can't get up anymore. You've got to stay in bed. And so she's lying there in bed about 11 o'clock, and as the, the grandfather clock downstairs begins to strike, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, something went wrong in the mechanism, and she's startled, and she forgets her father's warning, jumps out of bed, runs downstairs, and says, Mom and Dad, it's later than it's ever been before. I think that's what we're trying to tell you. It's later than it's ever been before. Jesus could come. There's nothing that keeps him from calling his church home right now. In fact, the signs of the times are incredible. And I hope that you have had that wonderful experience of personally receiving him. I've already shared with you that we receive wonderful letters of people who have received Christ. In fact, several folks in this conference said that they came because they had accepted Jesus after reading Left Behind. The fiction series, the Lord put this in my mind 25 years ago, that fiction could be a tool to get people to study Bible prophecy. And it's happened better than I ever dreamed. And I think of the the story, I've heard, I mentioned to you yesterday that We've heard from well over 3,000 people. I suppose it's their estimates from the publisher that each book is read cover to cover and given out to four other people on average. That's why I like to write fiction because there are about 20 times as many people that read fiction as nonfiction. I still write nonfiction. It's okay, Dave, just keep going. But and <laughs> we come along and put fiction to it. And the important thing is that you read about the word of the Lord. And a lady wrote me a a cute note. Someday I'll publish a book and put some of these stories in it. She was a registered nurse. And she said, my father was an atheist for 82 years. And he went blind. And since my husband and I had our children graduated from the home, uh, we decided instead of putting him in a rest home or something, I would invite him into our home. And so she did. Uh, he agreed. They had a spare room, and so they let Dad come into their home. But 
she said, now, Dad, when you're coming into my home, you have to understand the rules have changed. We're a God-fearing family. We believe that there's a God up in heaven, and we thank him for our food three times a day, and we pray to him at night. We read from the Bible, and this is a Christian home. And he smiled, and she said, you'll have to join us. And he, understanding the alternative, wasn't too swift, so he agreed, and uh, he loved his daughter. And he said, uh, well, you know, that's the way it was when, when she told him, she remembered, that's the way it was in our home. You said, we couldn't pray in our home because there's nobody up there listening, so why pray? That was his atheist idea. And uh, she said, we abided by your rules. You didn't know what we did at night when we went to bed, but, uh, you know, we, we obeyed your rules. Now you come into our home and you obey our rules. And he said, well, that, that's fair. And so several months went by. And then he said to her, you know, I love fiction, but I can't read anymore. Would you be willing to read fiction to me? And she said, well, yeah, Dad, I would, if I can pick the fiction. <laughs> guess what she started with? <laughs> left Behind. Don't be left behind. And she read Left Behind, and then Tribulation Force, the second one, and then Nikolai, the third one. And then the, the fourth one was based on Revelation 7 and the soul harvest that's going to happen when millions of people will come to faith even though they're in the tribulation and just have to go through that holocaust and all the suffering and so on. I'll make a long story short. She read to him from the fourth book, kissed him goodnight, and left him. The next morning, she walked in. There's a big smile on his face. And he said, honey, you don't have to worry about me anymore. She said, how come? He said, I prayed the prayer of Rayford Steele. Well, you know, if you've read the series, Rayford Steele is our guy that accepted Jesus by faith, called on the name of the Lord, and was wonderfully converted, became a leader during that time for the spiritual causes. But nine days after his funeral, her father passed away. I guess he was close to 84. She writes me this beautiful, emotional letter. Dear Pastor LaHaye, would God forgive a man who lived an atheistical life, who cursed God, who didn't trust anything for 82 years of his life, and then just before he dies, he accepts Jesus. Would God forgive a man like that? And what would you tell him? Same thing I did. Yes! I felt like taking my letterhead, you know, and putting a big yes on a felt pen. Because that's what God does. His great desire is that all men come to repentance. And I suppose I'm speaking to the choir this beautiful Sunday morning. You all look like every one of you have received Jesus. But it's possible. Some of you have not. If so, I'd like to give you an opportunity to do so. And there's another group that may be with us. You just may not be sure. When I pastored in San Diego, I had one deacon in the church, wonderful guy, married to a lovely lady. But after I left the church, after 25 years, I got one of the, I have a little file where I call special letters. This letter's in that special file. And she said, Dear Pastor LaHaye, 
thank you so much for giving me an opportunity to accept Jesus. She said, I went to church all through the years, and I was never really certain that I was born again. And every time you'd give the invitation, I would almost suffocate thinking about the fact that Jesus could come and I'm not ready. I'm not sure I'm ready. But she said, one day you talked to people like me that weren't sure and you gave us an opportunity and, and they always sat in the balcony and she's sitting up there and she prayed the sinner's prayer. Oh God, if I have never accepted you before today, I want to invite you into my heart. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died for my sins. You rose again. And I want to be assured that I'm... And that day, she said, thank you for doing that. Because ever since then, when you give an invitation, I'm not worried about my condition. I'm just relaxed in the Lord. I know that I've been born again. Do you know that? If not, I'd like to give you an opportunity right now. Let's bow together for prayer. With our heads bowed, our hearts open before God. Look into your heart and ask yourself, have I really called on the name of the Lord? If you haven't, right there in that moment, or if you're not sure you have, right there in this moment, will you pray that prayer? Dear Lord, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my stubbornness. I want today to receive your son, Jesus, and be your child. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. I give myself to you. If that's your need, make it your prayer. Now, no one look around. How many of you will say by the uplifted hand, Today, I have invited Jesus into my life. Just slip up your hand. God bless you. Yes. I'm sure there are others. God bless you and you. Others? Maybe you think you were saved, but you're not sure. Make sure right now. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Heavenly Father, thank you that we're not just a crowd of people, not just a group. We're individuals, precious in your sight, and that we can be assured that every soul can call upon your name. Thank you for sending Jesus and giving us so many telltale signs and prophecies that he really is the Son of God who alone would die for our sins. Thank you for every decision that's made. May it come to fruition with peace in their heart that they are now a child of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.